All right. Very excited to have Mark Baldino back on the podcast from Fuzzy Math. Um, we were talking uh, the other day about some topics that overlap for us, and it's uh, all about legacy software and the pains and perils of dealing with it. Um, I'm just curious for, for you, starting with kind of what's going on, what, what's the problems uh, that people are facing? So maybe talk about what you think, what's the issue with having legacy software right now? I think one of the bigger problems that people see is just the support and maintenance of these tools. And so we're on the design side and the user experience side. So I kind of speak about that, but I know that there are severe technical pains, um, with legacy software, but I think on the, um, on the UX or, or customer experience side, um, you know, the pain is in support, um, updates, um, integrations, um, onboarding legacy software very often doesn't take advantage of, um, I'll say modern customer experience, um, best practices and meeting kind of expectations. We think of the, the flip, which we can get to later of, of what does non-legacy software look like. I think onboarding and support is, it, it can kind of be the centerpiece of, of where you focus. Yeah. And I think a lot of soft legacy software isn't there right yeah, now. And when I think about, when I talk to people about, about their legacy software issues, the issue always comes up. It's sort of like there's a, they're kind of a ticking time bomb because at some point, you know, at some point there just aren't going to be any COBOL developers left. Um, I know actually I took it in college. I remember writing some stuff and it has been long enough that I'm, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't recognize it again. Um, but you know, those people are diminishing. It's not like next year there's going to be more of them. And so I feel like a lot of companies are in, in a way, kind of a game of chicken where they're saying, you know, okay, well, this would cost a lot to do now, but you know, it's, it, you know, it, we, can we live with these problems? And, you know, it, at some point, you know, uh, kind of kick the can to the next person or something like that. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you've experienced that sort of hesitation about, well, moving forward is uncertain. So what do we do? A hundred percent. I mean, they tend, legacy software tends to be really strong technically, right? It has um, a really strong technical underpinning. And I think for a while in software, that that worked, that ruled the day. And so those organizations that, I don't know, um, employ the last 100 Cobalt developers, you know, in the United States or something like that, they have a vested interest in keeping that going and, and the safety and security that it provides. Uh, we worked with a, um, an EDM uh, enterprise data management software vendor that had legacy software and it had been running at their client's install for 15 years without having to restart. Yeah. So that's like a, that's amazing. That's a reliability. Um, you know, that, that's a win, but they can't make changes to it. They can't extend it. They can't move it to meet the, where the market is. It's, it only can represent where the market was maybe 15 years ago. And so, um, they're a kind of, I would say scared to change scared to embrace that change, which is understandable, but it really, as you said, it's game of chicken or you're, you're putting yourself in a box where you really can't. You yeah. It's funny. You bring up a really good point. I remember talking with an engineer, actually going back to college in, in college, who'd worked on phone systems and the phones that, you know, to date ourselves that we grew up with, that had a kit, you know, a cord, like a little, the little windy cord that would get that weird knot in it that you couldn't undo. Uh, that those systems were designed to be so insanely like triple redundant that like, it was really weird if the phones weren't working. Like that was like a, like a huge, like a, someone must have run over a telephone pole. Whereas now it's like, you know, we have a whole ad campaign from a few years ago based on, can you hear me now? Cause it's like, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. It's, it's like a less of a, a thing now. And uh, when I look at um, like, even like legacy systems that we've worked on, um, 
In fact, I, I, there's there's one that we've worked on where I remember uh, estimating what the cost to rebuild it what would be, and they decided not to do that. And then, like seven or eight years later, they'd spent more to just whack a mole bugs for six or seven years than they had that would have been just to redo it. Um, and I know I think I've, I've seen an article in CIO.com that was something like that for like these systems, you basically pay for it again every five years with whatever your, your stuff yeah, right. is. It's crazy. It sounds right. And you're just, all you're doing is keeping status yeah. quo, right? You're not actually, you're not growing and shifting and you're, you're, Eventually, it's going to catch up with you, most likely from a competitive yeah. perspective. Well, you know, so someone's going to come along you, that's faster and, and, and more adaptive to the market. Yeah, and you tease some of the stuff that I think is really interesting. So to kind of get out of kind of what's wrong with legacy and onto what's possible and like why you might think about doing it, you tease some of the stuff. I, I know stuff we would come up with like, you know, integrations, um, you know, customer service, but your onboarding one is really interesting. I'm curious, maybe start there and, and, and talk a little bit more about things you'd get out of, you know, why would you embark? on something like that? Well, I mean, let's say when, we, when we're talking to folks who have legacy software, um, and it can be like legacy tech or it can be a SaaS-based solution that is legacy or, or, or hasn't been updated in a while, one of the choke points becomes customer onboarding and scaling. And a lot of people build their software by incrementally adding features for the next um, big client. So you get an enterprise client comes through, yeah. Hey, check the boxes on these 10 things. We need you to add these five things. Right. We do that for three people um, and do it for smaller companies. And all of a sudden you have a thousand check boxes and add actually literally adding a new customer becomes a chokehold mm. on, on, on your business. And I know this in speaking to C-suites at SaaS based software companies, which maybe tech, tech stack wise are a little bit more um, modern uh, than you'd get a client install or a thick client or something like that, but they haven't, taken the onboarding component and administration of the tool um, seriously. And they haven't thought about that as a product mm -hmm. because the expectation is maybe not in, in, in enterprise world or B2B, I can sign up and get it going, right? It's not maybe that turnkey from the website. I can put in my credit card information and, and add my team and, and we're up and running. There must be some configuration. But basically, you have a bunch of technologists who are um, more or less modifying the database to um, enable one more customer. So that's a huge... Um, load from a, um, a human resources perspective. Yeah. Humans are pretty hard hard to scale. Uh, it slows everything down. And those systems, again, I'm not a developer, but I know the performance of those systems is always slower at the end of the day because you kind of sure. have this um, garbled uh, system of code that's really not built to yeah, scale. Even got, kind of speaking from the tech side, like my experience has been that the legacy systems were built to do whatever they were built to do and are often configurable. But uh, in the sort of configure for any new customer or any big customer that you've kind of just described, um, they're, they can get clunky and, 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 and maybe not do what you need them to do there. So there's kind of fix on top of fix on top of fix. And 20 or 30 years later, um, it's really difficult to move something because even if you think, you know, just from like a, you know, tech deck kind of point of view, you know, you, you fix something yeah. and all of a sudden you're not, sh you, you have to go through the whole test suite and make sure you've covered all your bases to make sure you haven't broken something somewhere else, which almost certainly you have. Um, yeah. and so that's sort of the, that, that's one of the, the risks for sure. Yep. No, to, 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 totally agree. And I think that that, um, when to move, what's the balance between flexibility for a yeah. customer perspective and stability for your platform is a, a difficult one specifically for people that are, that are starting up, but you start making those decisions and they influence your product roadmap for right. 
conceivably right. forever. Well, so one of the things that I try to infuse in a lot of our other work that we do is um, only do something if there's an outcome in mind. So I think a lot of times, hmm. you know, these digital transformation modernization projects are done because um, just just because we hate the COBOL system or just because, you know, the new guy wants to do it in the new framework, whatever. And I find that you, uh, you, you get better results and get people more aligned if, like, if we're modernizing for some new business objective. So to your point, if we're saying something like it's really hard to onboard new customers and, you know, uh, great. We just finished this, this new customer, but this, we have this fortune, you know, company coming on board. It's going to cost us that much again and again and again. You know, if we look at the onboarding costs as at least the first thing to, to build into the value. Now we've got a goal we're going for. That seems to be a better way to approach it. Um, and I'm curious for you, like, how does that work on the, the UX side of things? Well, I, we love to start with those sort of business goals, right? If we have this pain point, um, and what it's actually, costing the business, they can quantify that mm-hmm. even even better. And we can kind of work back to um, what what does it mean from a change perspective? What is the current experience? How does it compare to best practices in the industry? So we do a lot of like scorecards. So user experience, user interface and interaction, um, SaaS, we kind of do these scorecards and say, here's where you are and here's where um, you know you compare to best practices. And then we talk to their customers. Um, for many of our clients, we are the first time that they're talking to their customers mm. in a proactive way outside of sales and support. So they skip everything in the middle, that entire customer <laughs> lifecycle journey. They don't talk to them. And, um, I'd say 99% of them don't have, don't, people don't have metrics inside of their software to say, this is how somebody's using my mm. software. So we're trying to fill in that knowledge gap by proactively in a discovery fashion, talking to their customers and understanding how they do use yeah. the software and not asking them, what do you want in the software? It's not what, it's not that type of question. It's really, how are you using it? And where are some of the pain points and what are some of your goals with the software? And that's where we can kind of yeah. reevaluate. Okay. Let's say specifically talking about onboarding. We learn that there's five people involved in onboarding and they all have different roles and titles and they all work across the globe. And your tool, um, when you try to onboard a new client has one client contact and no sense that there's right. multiple roles and responsibilities. Somebody who can hook up an API data connector to backend database is very different from somebody who can make a financial decision to purchase software sure. is different to somebody who's going to set up the users or the products and services within. So it's, it's really pulling apart the process, evaluating it, embedding some some customer voice of the customer and then saying, here's where you are and here's kind of where you got to go. And this is the, the so let me say, so, so let's say I'm the owner of a SaaS product and, and uh, for the sake of the story, I'm able to get access to this data. Um, you spend all day, all, all day in this. What, what are the kinds of data points and metrics that you would want to know about or look at to make that kind of decision? We'd want two if you have the data. The first is a high level, like CSAT customer satisfaction mm-hmm. metric. That can be um, different. We'd want it across different types of customers and roles, but really an understanding of how successful are people with this software. There's ways you can do it, but think simple and is, is a net promoter score. I would, you know, I'd refer sure, to the software yeah. or not. So that's at the higher CSAT. The good, um, the benefit of getting that type of data is that's pretty easily connectable to some revenue goals or some quarterly KPIs that, you know, business leaders are evaluating. But then we would want some actual like analytics. So there's lots of, 
good analytics of around how people use a website, what pages yeah. they're using, and you know maybe what the the conversion funnel is. There's not a lot of good data for inside of a tool. So hmm. what is the workflow that people are actually connecting with? What features are they going to first, second, third, and fourth to accomplish a core task? Where are they dropping out of those processes? So everyone's like funnel, funnel, yeah. funnel, conversion, conversion, for conversion from a marketing and sales yeah. perspective. No one's thinking about a funnel of and conversion of actually okay. using a tool. And I don't think a lot of companies who purchase the SaaS software know how their team is using sure. it and whether it's a real benefit. And people who own, if I'm a CEO of a SaaS-based software, um, I don't think they have a good understanding of how it's being used by uh, key clients and and broken down by either demographic or um, uh, some sort of market segments or, or profiles. And so it's that high-level CSAT, C, uh, customer satisfaction, and then sort of usage metrics within the tool. Even if you gave me, these are the... Um, top five features that are that get used like that's invaluable yeah. i don't think yeah. that's a heavy lift but a lot of people don't have access or the tools to get. have you ever been like really surprised by kind of one of those discovery sessions where you're like oh wow that's a really interesting finding about a metric or a usage or a pattern or something like that i mean I, because we don't get a lot of that data um it can be a challenge i think i'm more surprised um that there's lack of data of um who the customers are and kind of how they're utilizing it. So okay. my surprise is more not, I heard there was something interesting. It's um, there's really, really successful businesses out there with, I think what people consider good to great software. And there's, it's kind of a little bit of a black mm -hmm. box, how people are using it and, and want to be using it. And some are more sophisticated than others, but I think I'm, I'm often surprised by, Hey, we got to go get this data yeah. or we don't have any way to collect that data. And then it's a matter of, okay, that's, that's, Understandable. Let's let's go do some homework. Let's yeah. figure out how we can combine this stuff and, and tell a better story. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you called out the the usage funnel because we talk about a lot about that too. Where it's you know getting them getting the customers to the product. Yes, that's like a really important first step. But staying on the product and using it over time and increasing your lifetime value, all that kind of stuff. Um, we can't help you if we don't know what's happening inside the the app and where people are going, where they're getting stuck. Uh, I know for me, some of the things are sort of like uh, the surprising places people don't go. It's like, well, th this is a really cool part of the app. No one ever goes here. Why is that? Um, or, you know, places yeah. they get stuck, things like that. I always find those to be really interesting because because then we can come back with ideas to make the the product better as opposed to saying, well, we delivered it. And now here's your your, your customers are kind of off on their own. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's still a lot of like edge case development. And that happens yeah. a lot in legacy software. Talked about tech debt, right? Well, we can't exclude this. So we got to sort of build it, but we have no idea how many people are using it. But I do know that our one Fortune 100 client will not sign up for our software next year. Um, if we, if we remove right. it. And that's, that's a legitimate real problem for business. I don't mean to understate it. Um, but you probably don't have a good sense of how people are using that one feature and how many people are, yeah. what are they using before and what are they using after and what is it kind of getting them, um, you know, from a, yeah. a, a process and, and, well, and I also find there's also sort of on the flip side, I, I've, uh, we've, we've had clients that assume that something is being used and that when sure. you put in the analytics to find out, it's like, Oh no, no one cares about this at all. I know it seems really near and dear to you, but that right. was not part of what people care about. And and right. knowing that helps you make decisions. Cause I think a lot of those investment decisions are based on kind of hearsay. Sometimes, you know, we think this, totally. we believe this, but we don't have any data to, to, to back it up. And there's even kind of a fear around going and getting it sometimes. Um, so, you know, I'm curious for you, as you look at, um, in, in a world where you've done a modernization and you kind of look back on what what was accomplished, what changed for that company having done the work, 
Um, what, what are some things that come to mind about why you do it? Because here's what we got on the outcome side. I mean, the biggest, um, I mean, the biggest outcome is going to be, in, in, you know, increasing some of those metrics, right? If we are improving customer satisfaction, like that's a pat everybody on, on the back. If we are moving metrics and KPIs that the C-suite cares about, that's, that's really yeah. fantastic. Uh, if we're reducing churn, like those are all great. I think that a, 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 a direct, but some people see it as an ancillary benefit is that you, you're helping an organization be much more responsive to their, to their mm. customers and really imbuing the voice of their customers in their product development life cycle. Um, because sometimes it's, it's very ap- absent from how people develop software. And so we call it being user centered. You call it being customer centered. It's really instead of saying the technology is the center of this equation and we're going to build the greatest thing and we're going to give it to people. So you're thinking tech up, we're going to yeah. drive it down and give it to people. And because it's so powerful and we think it's so awesome and it checks a bunch of boxes during some procurement process. Great. We want, we really are advocating for the flip of that. And that's a real kind of light bulb moment for a lot of our clients who aren't spending time mm-hmm. thinking about, about their end user customers. It's, oh, okay, we're going to think about them and they're going to be the bottom of the pyramid and their needs yeah. are going to be here. And we're going to drive all of our product decisions based on that. So the biggest benefit I see is people feel more confident in the decisions they're making in their software. They're actually reflecting what the market and their customers need. And they feel um, like they're all marching in a, in, in sort of the same direction, as opposed to you mentioned whack-a-mole before got these list of features yeah. or bugs. And we're going to try to hit these in whatever order priority we can. Now step back from that, talk to your customers, understand their journey and understand pain points and goals. And let's reduce the pain points and let's amplify those, those goals or, or wins in your software and really use that as the decision-making process for what you include or don't yeah. include in, in the software. How, how successful are you at having that conversation with, with clients about like this approach, the strategy, even though that maybe it seems flipped or something? Um, I think a lot of clients that come to us are, are ready for it. They don't know that that's what they need, but they'll describe, Hey, our, um, our churn customer churns really high. Our lifetime customer value is decreasing and we're not sure, yeah. but kind of got an inkling that the software is hard to use. Um, maybe, uh, an example I use if, is that if somebody's unwilling to put a screenshot of their software on their mm. website, it probably means they have sort of a <laughs> UI negligence right. problem. They've right. been negligent about UI and UX, but they don't really know what to, how to go about it. And so a lot of people go straight to fix the UI, make this look prettier. Um, and so some of our process can be, that's one component, but you, but you're struggling to make consistent decisions that are aligned with your customer yeah. needs right now. And so we got to kind of change that process first. We have to put this foundation in place and we have to, we all have to, teach each other how to go about doing customer mm-hmm. research, how to do rapid prototyping, how to get something out in front of the market and in an iterative fashion and, and learn and then put some foundational building blocks in place for better yeah. information architecture, navigation and design. Then we get to the right. you, know, you said something I'd love to hear more about. You said, um, cause we talked about, you know, metrics inside the app and that's like numbers that like, you know, about usage and stuff like that. But then you said um, things that everybody has outside of the app, things like renewal rates are down, um, I don't like showing the app and demos. Like, what are some things that, like, no matter you have tracking in the app or not, what are some sort of leading indicators that maybe it's time to to think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think I think churn, at least in SaaS yeah. software and folks that are modernizing platforms, is probably one of the the the, the biggest mm-hmm. components. Um, SaaS software in general, as, as I've studied, it has these sort of peaks and valleys of growth, and I think um, uh, people get to these 
sort of peaks and they realize that things are slowing down and, and that's just a revenue install yeah. out. So that's the kind of number of customers and, and acquisition. And then there's the retention and, and overall, um, lifetime value. I mean, now those are things we hear from the C-suite, whether they know why that's sort of, um, a, a component of when they would decide to make changes. The other is that they're, there's this nagging sense that they're behind in the market. Um, they are going through a sales process, procurement process. They're losing to people that they perceive to be technologically yeah. inferior, um, and have a superior UX or hmm. usability. And so, um, they don't really know how to fix that. They haven't invested probably in, in design or, or user experience, but they have this nagging sense that they're losing things because the software, um, looks really hard to yeah. use. My hypothesis is it probably ends up being hard to use. So that's hmm. something they'll hear on kind of the, the front end from a sales perspective. So one of the things I want to kind of maybe finish on is risk. And, you know, from, from the technology side of things, I think one of the, the, the thing comes, that comes to mind, the, the, the first thing people think about about why not to do it is how risky it is from a cost and a development point of view. Are we risking downtime? Is it going to cost a lot of money and then we're not going to get anywhere? Um, and the strategy that we employ, uh, I learned recently has a name. Um, and so we've always called it a progressive rewrite. And the concept is mm-hmm. instead of like trying these wholesale, like rewrite the whole thing from scratch ideas seem to fail pretty often. And the idea, if you were to, to wrap your old uh, system uh, in like a modern wrapper and then create this new kind of service architecture idea where, you know, little calls are going to, to separate things, you could slowly but surely over the course of time isolate uh, some kind of function and replace it with something new and to the, to the, to the outside world and, and to the front end that maybe you guys would, would, would work on. It's still the same data, but it maybe it's coming from different places. Right. And I learned that that's uh, called the strangler fig approach. And from a client of ours, Peter Anderson. So shout out to Peter Anderson. It's a, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Is it Fowler? Derek, not Derek Fowler. Someone will correct me in the comments. Um, who's the, the big software, uh, uh kind of, uh, uh, philosophy guru uh, came up with the idea. So strangler fig is a plant that slowly wraps its tendrils up a plant and tree and then takes it over and kills it. I think so maybe the killing side isn't, awesome. the, isn't the upside, but the idea that, that it takes over time is actually pretty interesting. So that's a strategy that we employ. I'm curious for you, it does it in a way, maybe does it have to be a, a bandaid or is there a different way to do a UX refresh? No, I mean, it, there are these progressive approaches and I think um, that's a great first a great first step. So a lot of folks who are working with our, um, in some sort of roll up scenario, right? They maybe have been acquired by a PE firm that's rolling them up. And so there's a sense of how do we quickly integrate this from a, you know, a, a brand and overall look and feel. And I think that that can go a long way to integration, but when you get down to the core of the workflow, it's probably going to feel really, really different. So a, a lot of, to your point, a lot of cus- uh, clients can't just sort of pause and yeah. rebuild and they can't start, um, you know, they can't really start over. So we worked with a, um, uh, enterprise contingent labor company for five years where all we did was, was this approach of, of slow yeah. rebuild and, and rework of their usability. And they were patient and could do it. And they had the kind of market. I think some people need to move a little bit quicker. One thing we employ now a lot because when people look at the, 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 uh, user experience design process. I, I thought the term research and everyone's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, well, how much time are you inserting into our process? We already have our quarterly planning process done. We know it's going to get released in Q2, three, four, five. And, and that is a lot of fear of getting things done. And when a vendor comes in and says, slow down, 
Mm. Uh, great. I can try to make the case that, you know, we've talked about Mike before. What's the cost of not doing this? Yeah. What's the cost of delaying this three months? Like, can you help quantify that? And uh, in our, I know in both of our experience, the pain that they actually, if they can quantify it, the pain that they're experiencing probably tells them to, to move quicker. But one approach we've been doing a lot recently is this parallel path approach. Um, so it's, it's a, it's similar to yours. Um, that, that you mentioned, um, which is the kind of bits and pieces and eventually pull the whole thing underneath and be born again. But we try to work in, in parallel. So we'll make those incremental updates to the software. They can be UI fixes, usability fixes, and some key features. And then we're working on kind of a little bit more um, blue ocean or green field kind yeah. of environment where we're trying to take some key use cases and do more of a customer development approach and a, and a user centered approach where we're doing more rapid prototyping, low fidelity. And, and then what you, you kind of have an option when you get there, you can take those learnings from that parallel yeah. path and put it into the progressive, or you can start to make a case of, Hey, we need to, we need to have a big cutover and now we can make the investment. Maybe we do a lot is we're working on like the user. Um, what's the use case sure, for this sure. from a usage perspective? And our, our client is working on the commercial business perspective. When we can marry those two up, we can say, okay, now we've vetted this idea enough that we know we can actually start yeah. the new foundation and then eventually um, move some clients over. I think both win. I don't, I think very few businesses are like, you know, we're going to sort of stop what we're doing for six months and, and rebuild this from scratch because that, that generally means the business isn't probably being successful. And there's something to be said for people that they want to keep their yeah, customers yeah. happy and, and not lose them along the way. That's fantastic. Um, hey, so this has been great. Uh, as I always hope for, I learned something. So thanks. Um, and yeah, uh, thanks great. again for being on the, uh, the old podcast with me and look forward to having you again sometime. Anytime, Mike. Thank you for having me. Hey, you made it all the way to the end. Thanks. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to hear more content just like this.